Is that better? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I'm Sam Williams, and I am an elder, in fact, the eldest elder at North Wake, which is kind of a bummer, but, uh, you know, you got to own it. And um, so, uh, happy Thanksgiving. And, uh, you know, Thanksgiving sometimes is very natural, right? Somebody gives you an incredible gift or a wonderful compliment. And you go, wow, thank you so, so much. Um, You know, I've uh, been going out to Nash Correctional Institute in Nashville, North Carolina for a couple of years now as I'm a professor at the seminary over here, and I go out there and teach. We're training these guys, and they're actually earning bachelor's degrees in Christian ministry so that they can then be sent from that prison to other prisons to do ministry with their own people group. It's, it's wonderful. I've learned so much, and this is one of the lessons. I was out there one day and um, teaching, and this student in the back of the room said, uh, Dr. Williams, you, you, you look like you really like coming out here. You act like you like this. I said, you know, I really do. I, I didn't expect it. I, I kind of came out begrudgingly. I didn't want to drive 40 minutes when the seminary is only five minutes. Driving 40 seems like a great hardship for me as I go to work. And I said, but on the other hand, you know, you guys are great students. You work so hard. You love the study. Um, furthermore, I see God show up in, in just amazing, obvious ways. And I said, I, 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 so I, yes, I like coming, but I told him, I said, you know, there's a hard part to it. I said, although I love coming out here, it's hard in another way in that when I leave here this afternoon and go get in my air-conditioned car, and then drive to my four-bedroom house. I think about you guys going to your single bunk, 12 by 12 cell. And I said, that's heavy duty for me. I, I, I've learned that there's not that much difference between you and me. I know you're here from some, for some heavy duty stuff. And in fact, most of the guys are there for life without parole. So that tells you what they're there for. Right? So I'm, I'm explaining this, the hard part of going out to the prison to them, you know? And, and this guy in the back of the room raised, he said, Dr. Williams, let me, let me, he said, you know, I appreciate that. But he said, really, he said, don't feel sorry for me. He said, I'm grateful to be here in prison. I wouldn't be alive if I wasn't here. I'm grateful, Dr. Williams. A lesson in gratitude it was. So why isn't every day a day of thanksgiving for us? Well, there is a good answer to that. And and, and part of the answer is that there are, in fact, so many hard, difficult, terrible things going on around us. Sometimes in our families, sometimes in my own life. So, there is a lot of suffering in this world. We live in a place where it's quite obvious that something has gone horribly, terribly wrong. 
Things aren't the way they're supposed to be. Doesn't take a rocket scientist to notice this. So, at one level, our health. We, we get colds, right? That's really a bummer, I hate colds. And then sometimes we get COVID. And sometimes we get cancer. Weather's not always great. Uh, you go outside and sometimes it's really gray and it's really cold and you don't even go outside sometimes because the weather's so bad. You just stay in, it's so bad out there. And it can get worse than that, right? The weather turns sometimes toward hurricanes and, and tornadoes and, and, and that, that ruins not just our homes and not just the weather, but sometimes people's lives. Sometimes people die in these weather events, right? Well, and then there's difficult, messy people. You know what I'm talking about. Friends, family that, that you thought would be there for you, but they let you down again and sometimes again and sometimes again. And sometimes those closest to us hurt us so much. And then, of course, we've got the news. Most of that's sad or bad. So, in fact, there is a lot going on around us that is wrong. And it's bad. And sometimes it hurts a lot. And these things should be grieved. Grief is a biblical category, just like rejoicing is. We have good reason for sadness, to mourn, to lament. There's a whole category of psalms called lament. There's a, a book in the Bible called Lamentations. So that's one reason every day isn't a day of thanksgiving. The Bible does say there's a time to weep. And we should weep with those who weep. And there's a time to grieve. But Paul says, not like those who have no hope. So yes, grieve, Paul says, but grieve hopefully. He says in Romans 5, he says, is that we're to rejoice in, not instead of our sufferings, that we're to rejoice or glory or, or boast in, not instead of suffering. It's a both and, not an either or. According to Paul, he seems to validate both of these categories. So yeah, the, the world out there's a mess, uh, and so am I. And so are you. True, true, true that. But that's not the whole story, is it? If we open both eyes, if we saw God clearly, and heard him just right, and really opened our eyes and ears so that we could perceive all the goodness and all the beauty around us in nature, in people, in so many other ways he provides for us. If we really had our eyes opened every day, not just last Thursday, it would be Thanksgiving. So I want to share a couple stories in which the primary characters uh, experience what would be called an epiphany. 
And these are both stories about gratitude. The first one is about a psychologist. Some of you know, probably not all of you, I was trained as a clinical psychologist, was in private practice for years, then came here to teach counseling at the seminary. And one of the guys I studied was Martin Seligman. He uh, got on the map by studying depression. He developed what's called the learned helplessness theory of depression. So what he contends in this theory is that people get depressed because they go through life experiences in which they come to believe that they have no voice and no choice and no options. And then as a result, since it doesn't matter what they do, they give up. They conclude that nothing makes a difference. There's nothing I can do that will improve my plight. I'm helpless, I'm hopeless. Show me the exit, please. And this was the source of depression, Dr. Seligman believed. So that's a little bit of a backstory on Martin Seligman. Let's jump forward a few years. He became the president of the American Psychological Association and wrote this story in one of the flagship journals for the APA about his five-year-old daughter, Nikki. He says, Nikki and I were out in the garden, garden uh, weeding, and she's five years old. I have to confess that even though I've written books about children, I'm really not all that good with children. Nikki has taught me this. I, I'm really goal-oriented and time-urgent, and when I'm weeding the garden, I'm actually trying to get the weeding done. Nikki, on the other hand, was throwing weeds in the air, singing, dancing. I yelled at her. She walked away, and she came back and said, Daddy, uh, can I talk with you? I said, sure, Nikki. I said, Daddy, do you remember me before my fifth birthday? From the time I was three until the time I was five, I was a whiner. I whined every day. But when I turned five, I decided not to whine anymore. That was the hardest thing I've ever done, Daddy. And you know what? If I can stop whining, you can stop being such a grouch. <laughs> Dr. Seligman closes the story with this comment. That was for me an epiphany, nothing less. I resolved to change, he said. So he went on uh, to develop and be one of, become one of the founding fathers of positive psychology, or the, sometimes it's called the psychology of happiness. And the aim of the positive psychologist and the psychology of happiness is not just to study why depressed or anxious people are depressed or anxious, but why are happy, resilient people happy and resilient? What's wrong with them? How, could they, how are they so happy? What's up with that? So uh, positive psychology has found that gratitude or thanksgiving promotes happiness. And what they've found, in fact, is that grateful people are happy people. That grateful people are the happy people. So what we do, what I do sometimes, is we assign Thanksgiving exercises to our clients that are depressed. And in fact, the research has found it to be one of the most potent therapeutic exercises to improve mood, reduce depression, reduce anxiety, raise energy levels, and even reduce chronic pain. 
So we assign things like a gratitude journal every night before you go to bed. Sit and write three minutes about the best things of your day. Even if it was a hard day, just write about the, the things that happened right, that were in some way good. Just write those down, a gratitude journal. We also assign them gratitude visits, Thanksgiving messages in which they write, email or text, somebody that they're grateful, and just thank somebody. Not just think about gratitude, but do it. Thank somebody. Or a gratitude visit. Go visit that old teacher that had so much impact on your life and just say, thank you. You made a difference. So, clinical psychology has learned what I actually learned in Sunday school many, many years before graduate school, that the Bible has a lot to say about thanksgiving. Jesus had a lot to say. And so that's the second story in which there's a second epiphany. So we've just talked about Dr. Seligman's epiphany through his daughter, Nikki. And we wanna, I want you to take a look with me at Luke chapter 17, verses 11 to 19. And uh, this is a story about Jesus and the, and the ten lepers. So uh, it says uh, in verse 11, now Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. Now this, this story about Jesus' healing of ten lepers is part of a larger story that's really important for us to understand the main point of this particular story. See, Jesus, it said earlier in this gospel, said he had set his face like flint. He steeled himself. He was absolutely determined to go to Jerusalem where he would head for a hill outside the city where he would submit to crucifixion on a rough-hewn, splintered cross, a little like this one, back here, and where he would, with blood, sweat, and tears, sacrifice his life for you and me and anybody anywhere that confessed with their mouth and believed in their heart that he was and is and forever shall be Lord. So this historical context is important once again to get the gist of this miracle story, and especially Jesus' three questions that come as part of it. Verses 12 and 13 say, as he was going into a village, 10 men who had leprosy met him. And they stood at a distance, called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. 10 lepers, now leprosy here, refers to a variety of different skin diseases, but that were singled out because they were usually incurable and highly contagious. So lepers were considered unfit for community, unfit to live in the city, unfit to live in their homes, and even unfit to go to the temple and worship. So they were quarantined Think back a couple years, you might remember that term. They were cut off from their friends, their family, and even worse, they were cut off from God. 
They weren't allowed to go to church to worship even. So the two most important relationships in life with God and with others were severed by this skin disease. And we're going to see as we look further in this passage the two most important relationships in life with God and others are severed by your sin disease. So, Jewish custom back then required that they make a first century social media announcement. It's a little uh, odd for us, especially the first part. Let me read it to you. Leviticus chapter 13, verses 45 and 46. Anyone with a defiling disease must wear torn clothes and let their hair be unkempt. Welcome to my world. Um, But they must also then cover the lower part of their face and cry out, unclean, unclean. I'm unclean, stay away from me. No, you can't touch me, I can't touch you. Verse 46 says, as long as they have the disease, they remain unclean, so they must live alone. They must be alone. They must live outside the camp. So that's the leper's plight. Very difficult, such social isolation. Well, but in spite of their plight, these 10 lepers, I do think, teach us a couple of very basic and super important lessons in what they say to Jesus. And the first is this, own your disease. Own it. Know your diagnosis. Because if you don't, you can't do the second important thing we learn from them. And that they did, they cried out and said, have mercy on us. So the two lessons from the ten lepers is own your disease, know your diagnosis, and then, quite simply, get help. Cry out and get help. So they had obviously heard of Jesus, that he was a miracle worker, had special powers, and, and, and they do know their diagnosis. They're owning it. So they, Jesus, have pity on us. And I don't want us to underestimate this very, very important starting place. You don't go to the doctor if you keep saying, no, I just have a cold, or it's just a flesh wound. It's just whatever. You'll never go to the doctor if you're, it's just. Jesus says in the Gospels as well, he says, I didn't come for the healthy. If you got it all together, if you're healthy, you don't need me. I didn't come for you. No, Jesus didn't come because there are no really healthy persons compared to him. He didn't come for the fake healthy, the faux healthy. He came for those that owned their disease, that were unwilling to hide it. So if we minimize our brokenness, our wrongness, our profound need for healing and forgiveness, what happens is we either don't go get help or we go get the wrong kind of help, superficial remedies, whether it's alcohol or drugs or sex or money or power or some kind of material junk that you can get on Amazon 
but that just lasts a day or two, and then you need another fix, don't you? Know your diagnosis. Because otherwise, you'll go to a dermatologist when what you really need is a cardiologist or maybe even a heart surgeon. Verse 14. When he saw them, when Jesus saw them, he said, go show yourself to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. So under the old covenant, priests functioned like health inspectors. They could verify healing and then a sacrifice would need to be offered symbolizing the end of the quarantine. And then these healed persons were pronounced clean. Clean. You know what it's like when you haven't taken a shower for a long time? You go get in the shower and then you get out and you go, wow, clean is wonderful. Clean's a big deal when you've been dirty for a long, long time. And Jesus tells him, he says, you know, go show yourself to the priests. He told him that. They did that. There's an order here, I think, that is also important that we can learn from these lepers. First, the obedience of faith. Listen to Jesus and do what he says. That's the best counsel I've ever received, and I've received it many, many times, because I've needed it many, many times, from my pastor, Larry Trotter. Sam, listen to Jesus and do what he says. That's great pastoral counseling, my dear friends. So verse 15 says, one of them, not 10, but one of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praised God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. And then Jesus asked, well, weren't all 10 of them cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner, this Samaritan, this outsider? So the question Jesus asks by means of the evangelist Luke are also questions for you and I. How do you answer these three questions? Where are the other nine? Why, why, they were cleansed and healed, weren't they? What's the big difference between the nine and the one? Well, some scholars say that it, well, it was because this guy was a Samaritan and he, he couldn't go into the temple in Jerusalem and therefore he wasn't allowed to go there, so that's why he came back. But I don't think that's where the rub lies here and I don't think that's where Jesus' questions take us in understanding What's going on here? That's why Jesus asked, but weren't all 10 of them cleansed? Haven't you been blessed in so many ways? How much goodness has come your way? Well, the crucial difference, I think, here between the one and the nine is in the verbs describing what that one guy did, especially the first verb. It says he saw. He saw. This was his epiphany. He saw. And then as a consequence, he turned around. He runs back. He praises God loudly and throws himself down at Jesus' feet 
and he thanked Jesus. He did not have to do this. This isn't, it wasn't like, you know, with my kids when we were, they were growing up. Now, Matt, he's right here. Thank you. Say thank you, Matt. Thank you. No. This guy wanted with all his heart to say thank you, thank you, thank you. That's all he wanted to do was run back, prostrate himself, and thank you, thank you, thank you. That's gratitude. And you see where it comes from. The eyes of his heart are opened, and not only is his body healed, but his eyes Blind, the song says, but now I see. Job says, you know, I'd heard of you, God, but, but now I see you. Okay. So subs- subsequent to this deep internal change, he's overcome by gratitude. What's the other difference between the nine and the one? I think there's another one here. And once again, let's, let's take it personally, right? What's the difference between grumpy Sam and grateful Sam? What's the difference between grumpy you and grateful you? Because all nine were cured. They received blessing and healing. They were cleansed, it says. But they were not Samaritans. They were insiders, they were raised inside the camp, at least till they got leprosy. And I think Luke is highlighting here that salvation isn't for those that think they bring something to the table, that think they've got some kind of special merit that pulls them inside the circle. No, I think Luke is saying salvation is for the Gentiles, not just the Jews. It's for the pagans. It's for the heretics. It's for the unclean. It's for those that are outside the camp. In other words, it's for anybody that knows they're a moral leper. For anybody that knows their diagnosis. And they know where help is found. Which for moral leprosy is at only one place in the universe. And that's at the feet of Jesus. So this is what some theologians call the great reversal. Missiological principle it is that, that somehow the people that Jesus came for, most of them didn't get it. It's the people that were outside Israel that somehow we've gotten it. Jesus here is turning the world system of good guys and bad guys, turning them from the, the Jewish merit system or for us, maybe our American merit systems, turning those systems inside out and upside down. Right? This, is, this is the Jesus who said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek, the gentle. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are the peacemakers. Yeah, they'll never get on the news, but, but they're blessed. So when it comes down to it, Applied to North Wake, there are no townies and gownies here. There are no seminaries and ordinaries in this church. We're all lepers. Lepers who know that we 
are, without Jesus, unclean. But our eyes have been opened and we've turned around and hopefully we will continue to say like we have this morning, thank you, thank you, thank you. And once again, it doesn't mean that you might not also be grieving and mourning and lamenting. But it's not either or, my dear friends. It's both and. Grieve, hopefully, Paul says. So the last verse says, Then Jesus said to him, to the one, Rise and go, your faith has made you well. Some translations say, your faith has saved you. This is about salvation. This guy's healing didn't stop with his body. He was cured not just of his skin disease, but also of his sin disease. And his healing went all the way through and all the way down. And that's the good news that we have in Jesus. That what's sick and dying can be healed. We can find new life. A new man, a new woman, a new boy, a new girl is born that will live forever and ever and ever and ever. Something new is born. That's what born again means. Furthermore, it's a little better than that even, that that we become citizens of a new society. We're placed into a new community, a culture that is, or at least should, God help us, especially as we go into 2014, or 24, excuse me. 24. I wish, that's nostalgia operating there, or early dementia perhaps. Um, so, uh, but we are, we, we, we are placed into, we're not just saved individually, but we're saved into a new culture, a new community, a new society. That's what we are. And so we should look very, very, very different from what you hear and see on the news. It doesn't mean we don't have differences. Of course we do. How could that not be? But there's something deeper and better that we all share, Right? So if your eyes have been opened today, you get to do. And I want to invite you to the Lord's table. Under the Old Covenant, God instructed his people to give thank offerings, which required bread and the sacrifice of a goat. Well, we've got the bread here for you today. And the good news is that you don't have to go get a goat. Jesus is your goat. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, the Bible says. But we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So thank you, Jesus. We'd like to close our time together today with one last great act of thanksgiving. Um, And it happens at what in our tradition is called the Lord's Table. Uh, But some of your brothers and sisters in other Christian traditions would call it the Eucharist. And that word itself means to give thanks. And uh, the prayers that surround in those traditions, the prayers that surround this act of worship are called the Great Thanksgiving. And I think it's appropriate for us that we should 
in our last uh, act of worship together today, have a chance to give a great thanks to Christ for that which he has done for us on our behalf. What this table uh, represents.